Chapter Six of Red Arrows in the Night by Daniel A. Lord S. J. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. Chapter Six. When we regained the dining room, Beth was still standing there, her bow in hand, facing the glowering uncle and the silent mate. Her mute inquiry left us helpless, but it was the captain who saved the situation. Miss Henley, he said gallantly, I have seen enough to know that you are absolutely guiltless. Thank you, she said. Then with a swift look of puzzled inquiry on her face, she disappeared up the stairs. Again the captain took command. It's midnight, he said, and my men will be waiting to set sail. My thanks to you, Mr. Erkenwold, for your great hospitality. My compliments to you, gentlemen, and my hope that we shall meet again. Mr. Johnson, our ship is waiting. It was an exit that completely distracted all of us from the question of Beth and the archer. Almost it seemed as if somewhere along the line we had cleared Beth of any suspicion. I wonder if Tim's uncle had noticed that we said nothing. The uncle wheeled his chair into the hall. Tim and I followed along. There were brief farewells to the seamen, and the officers strode off across the lawn toward their ship. Slowly the uncle closed the door. Then he wheeled his chair with a speed I had not dreamed possible in him. "'Who's doing this to me?' he whispered, his voice low and tense. "'Do you know, either of you?' He stopped for an answer. We had none to give. Then he leaned far forward in his chair. "'Don't think I didn't notice that you two said nothing about the girl. Nothing. Before heaven, if she's the archer, woman or no woman.' And he shot his chair at almost express speed across the reception hall and off toward his apartments. We waited until we heard the door slam. Then, without a word, we both leaped for the open window in the lawn. Again, though, it meant more time. We followed the line of the shadowy hedges. The two seamen were just mounting the rise of the lawn-softened hill. We kept them clearly in sight, but made certain that they could not see us. It was not fun playing sleuth across a still wet lawn, and then over a muddy road, dressed as we were in dinner jackets and stiff linen. We turned up our collars, glad that our black clothes were additional camouflage, and were within easy sight when the two seamen reached the cliff and scrambled down the seawall to the cove. We followed, hanging just far enough over the edge in order to see, with a minimum chance of being seen. A sailor in the dinghy was waiting for them at shore's edge. They were rowed out to the waiting ship. The slow pulse of the engines rose in the silence. As they mounted the ladder, two seamen gave them a salute snappy, professional, not by any manner or means, the slipshod salute of coastal sailors. Then one of them dropped back down the ladder, was rowed back to the shore, and jumped to land. I'll watch the ship, I whispered to Tim. You watch the man. The dinghy made its return trip. I heard the sound of anchors being lifted. Lights sprang into existence to bow and stern, and the slim, graceful little ship, under an expert helmsman's touch, found a narrow opening in the overlapping arms of the harbor, cut out to sea, and steamed southeast. As I turned to Tim, I saw that he too was following the ship. "'What about that sailor that was left behind?' I demanded. He melted into the cliff. "'At the mouth of the cave?' "'Precisely, at the mouth of the cave.' Tim gripped my arm. "'Let's follow him.' "'Not tonight, nor tomorrow. Whatever his business,' He's bound to lie quiet for two days or more, until the ship is far, far on its way, 
and any connection between him and the others has been stretched by time to the breaking point. Tim nodded and we plodded back through the darkness. Beth was waiting for us, standing at the open door of her room. I'm so worried, she whispered, clinging to Tim. You don't think I'm the archer, that I have anything to do with the archer. Darling, cried Tim, and in that word he made an act of faith in a profession of love. Though in her case I had no right to use so short a form, I made my act of loyalty with equal sincerity. By the horrible coincidence, she cried, Tim, it's true, I love archery. I brought the bow and a quiver full of arrows with me, but when I heard the legend of the archer, I put them aside. This I'm sure of, though, she whispered. It was Madame Leclerc who suggested to the butler that he search my room. Does she want me suspected? Does she herself suspect me? What does it mean? Since none of us knew, there was just one thing to do, sleep on the whole problem. And we did it, though my rest was fitful as the pieces of this jigsaw puzzle jumbled about in my troubled head. We slipped away, the three of us, for Sunday Mass. Tim's uncle did not appear for breakfast or for lunch. Several times I met the valet, going to or returning from the uncle's apartments, and always he stepped inside with a show of deference that was like an insult thrown in my face. During the afternoon, Tim again confiscated the small car, and again we ran down to the village. We came to a stop before the sheriff's office, and found that jovial, if minor minion of the law, relaxing, according to his wont, at his disorderly desk. The sheriff clearly regarded a desk as the proper repository for unanswered mail, old newspapers, last week's collars, his hat, and his well-filled shoes. "'Anything further on that tramp?' I inquired. "'Nothing further to be expected,' he laughed, taking my preferred cigar with a nod of thanks. "'Just keeping him cold down at the morgue. We've got a nice modern morgue, by the way. After a few days, burial, and that's all of that.' We left him and headed out for the seawall. We stopped the car on the promontory, where the sea, in leisurely fashion, beat its lazy rhythm against the unresponsive cliffs. Carefully we examined the pieces of our puzzle once again. Did they belong together? Were they merely disjointed events, each having no bearing on the others? There was the phantom archer, ghost, or manman, or murderer in the making. There was a tramp, who came by midnight, and left with a broken arrow in his heart. There was a boat, that pretended to be in distress, and clearly was not in distress. There was a cave, and a house with a legendary ghost, and the three of us like babes in the woods, trying to fit the parts into a unity that they were perhaps never meant to have. An uncle's valet, said Tim, as if he were reaching a climax. Yes, the valet, I agreed. Do you remotely suppose, asked Beth, almost as if she was afraid to have suggested, that he might be the archer? If you stop to think— He's never been with us when the arrows came. Tim protested. Why, the archer's tall and slim and young-looking. This fellow was bent and crooked, with an unmistakable hump on his back, and old and ugly. Beth nodded in quick agreement. She seemed almost ashamed to have made the suggestion. Yet she laid her fingers on something that had forced itself into my mind again and again. Utterly ridiculous as any identity between the two might seem. Still... Then I worked out our plan. That night the three of us would each play sentry, be on the watch for the archer's appearance. Only this time, if he came, he would meet, not with a group of frightened people, but with three alert watchers, each with a part to play, 
each with one and only one detail of the job to do, and if he escaped us. Madame Leclerc had her dinner served early in her room. She was tired, she said, and upset by the strange goings-on in the house. Tim's uncle sent no word. Tim, Beth, and I stood at table for a few minutes after the butler had sounded the gong, and then, tired of waiting, sat ourselves down and told the butler to serve us. We liked it better that way, anyhow, just the three of us. So we were quite happy and much at peace by the time the coffee had been served in the living room and the radio was bringing in the music of Tim's favorite dance band. The fates were, I might say, often gentle with Tim. When he had the one and only girl to dance with, blessed if the radio didn't come through with the one and only orchestra. Yet, just as they were swinging into a Hawaiian number that simply reeked of moonlight and palms and moon over silvery sands, we felt the death head walking. Through the doorway on those silent wheels of the chair came Tim's uncle, the chair propelled by the valet, never particularly attractive even in the best lights, and after the most restful night and day, Tim's uncle at this moment looked like something that had been dug up from a not-too-fresh grave. He was pale, tense, his eyes red from sleeplessness, his lips taut and bloodless. Once more, he began without introduction, will you accept my invitation to go to New York? Uncle, replied Tim, with cool politeness, that's a strange invitation. How can you invite a person to go away? I hate quibbles, and plays on words worse than puns, growled the uncle, then suddenly gripping his chair in tight gray claw hands. All right, then, I'm telling you to go. This joke has gone far enough. I don't believe in ghosts. Never did. But as long as you... And he leveled the thin, wrinkled finger at Tim. Stay here. None of us is safe. Whatever, or whoever that midnight marauder is, he's after blood. Well, I'm too old, too nervous, too upset for this. His voice trailed off uncertainly. It was low and fierce when he again flung it in our faces. Who's responsible for this nonsense? That girl with her bow and her lying excuse. Uncle. Tim's voice was full of warning. Or you, he ruled on Tim, who have never forgiven me because my brother left me his money. He was my father, too, Tim reminded him. What difference? It was my advice that made him rich. My brains were back of his beginnings. He owed it to me. I don't know what made me lift my eyes to the valet who stood behind the chair. What I saw in his face was beyond my power to read, but I was for a second glad that in this whole scene I was audience rather than actor, and that the hates I felt swirling around me were directed, like the arrows of the archer, at someone other than myself. Glad, that is, until I realized that the look on the valet's face was probably meant for Tim. Then I recalled that I was, not audience, but someone likely to be involved in this whole drama, until the ringing down of someone's curtain. I pray that it might not be Tim's or Beth's. That was all of that scene. Without another word, the valet swung his master from the living room, and both were gone. Only now the rhythm had been jarred from the music. Young love had been too close to old, vicious hate. The romance was swallowed up in the nearness of bleak reality, and we were three young people with a task to do, and not much stomach for the doing of it. Beth took the first lines. She pretended great weariness and went off to bed. Tim and I played a bit of rummy and drank the remains of the thermos of coffee. Then with ostentatiously glad good nights, we headed for our rooms. Silence fell upon the house. Darkness dropped over the scene. Then Tim opened the door between our rooms and slipped in to join me on the window seat. 
We did not dare smoke for fear that the lights would be seen from the grounds below. We simply waited until the clock beat its interminable quarters into unendurable hours, and midnight approached. Below, splashed upon the lawn in an oblong of golden mistiness, was the light that fell, as I knew, from Tim's uncle's window. He read late, or did whatever he did at that hour of the night. As the third quarter struck, with fifteen minutes left till midnight, we knew it was time to leave our apartment. Tim carried a service revolver, not for any other purpose than to produce the loud noise that was to be our signal. We were dressed, both of us, in black, no white linen showing, hats far down over our eyes. As we opened my door, Beth opened hers. The hands of the two young people met briefly, and then I saw Beth slip up the stairs to the window from which we had kept our watch during the night that we first saw the ship. We men stole down the stairs on tiptoe. At the door leading into the garden we parted. Tim slunk back into the darkness of the building, crouching a little like a runner on his mark. I cut to the corner of the building from which I could see the night light in the porter's lodge. The light had evidently burned all night in the bedroom of the valet. We were all now at our posts, Tim ready to make a swift run toward the archer. I said to pounce down upon the house of the valet, Beth watching the entire scene for any detail we might miss. And back of us all this time the uncle's apartments lighted almost as if in expectation of a visitant. How the everlasting minutes dragged their weary length of seconds along. I leaned against the building, stiff and chilly and growing sleepier by the minute. I turned alternately toward the rise of ground on which the archer played his role, and then back to watch the dim light in the bedroom of the valet. Noiselessly I beat my hands against my sides, working the fight off sleep. A distant clock chimed twelve, a quarter after, and then. So swiftly that I could hardly follow it, it happened. Along the spine of the rise walked the archer. I could see the tall feather in his hat, clearly against the sky. I could see the swing of his legs. One swift glance to be sure that the light in the uncle's window still burned, and then with all the speed I had failed to show on the Fordham track team, I lagged it for the valet's house. This time there was no question of knocking at his door. I headed straight for that lighted window, risking everything in my effort to see what was inside. Once I stumbled against low bushes and fell in the damp grass, tearing my hand and soiling the knees of my dress trousers. But I was up again, and then on my hands and knees, before the dimly lit window, pressing my face against the opening, made apparently to let in the air. Why was I so disappointed? Truth to tell, I had expected just this, or something like it. Yet when I saw the hunched figure of the valet lying in bed, a sheet drawn up over the curve of his back, his coarse hair, and unkempt against the white of the linen that covered his pillow, I felt licked. The valet lay asleep under his nightlight at the very moment that that scarlet archer was lifting his arrow to shoot. I rose as quietly as possible, feeling the other failure I was. Clearly the fellow, bad as he seemed, and repellent as his manner might be, was neither the archer nor a confederate of the archer. For surely a confederate was not likely to be sleeping at this very time his alley and friend was bent on a mission of mischief or warning. In my sheer funk I must have walked a dozen paces before I realized that mine was only a third of the drama that was being played on the lawn. In a sharp burst of speed I raced for that corner of the house from which I had started, prepared to see Tim locked in the grip of an adversary, or standing over the fallen body of a foe, or struggling to seize the filmy nebula of a ghostly opponent. I rounded the corner of the house to see nothing. 
Even the light in the uncle's window was out. The lawn lay dark and shadowy, deeper in blackness where the hedge dipped it into midnight ink, lighter where it rose toward the sky. I looked up at the house. There was not the faintest spark of a light showing, and yet I knew that high up there in that dormer window, Beth was sitting and watching, perhaps seeing the very things that might be essential to our solving of this mystery. I did not dare call. Instead I craned out into the darkness, searching every inch of the dimly lighted dawn, prying into the shadows for any shadows that might move or seem different or be not dead nightshade, but living people. Where in heaven's name was Tim? Was this archer then a ghost after all? Had the ghost, in furious resentment at hands having been laid upon him, laughed at Tim with him into the hereafter? The very thought was ridiculous, yet I had to shake myself and rouse my courage before I could pronounce it the ridiculous fantasy it was. Some sudden impulse made me glance back at the porter's lodge. A shadow was moving across the screen. What had wakened that fellow, for it was clearly the shadow of the valet. Before I dared look for Tim, I plunged once more across the garden to the lodge. Down on my hands and knees I went, risking all that I could only guess, to place my eyes against the opening in the window. Attired in a hideously colored nightshirt, the valet was sitting on the side of his bed. He yawned elaborately, stretched out his arms in a travesty of weariness. He seemed to look at the clock on the table near the bed. He poured himself a glass of water from the thermos. Then he rolled into bed, and by the nightlight I saw him resume precisely the position that he had had when a few minutes earlier I had come upon him asleep. What had wakened him? Some sense of nearby movement? Some noise I had inadvertently made? The restlessness of his own filthy conscience? Back I went to my corner of the building, this time sure that I should see nothing. Then I crept along the hedge, first the left hedge, which yielded nothing, then back to the shadow of the building, and across to the hedge on the far side. Some fascination kept me lifting my eyes intermittently towards the summer-house, as if it held the solution to our problems. Then my foot hit something soft. I plunged forward, and I heard under me a very low and very human groan. Terror and anxiety were twin chains pulling me erect. A man lay on the grass in the deep shadow of the hedge. In a second I was down on my knees again, ruling the limp, inert figure on its back. I needed no light to know that it was Tim, living, breathing heavily, but not cold as if he had been hit on the chin with the mallet of the Cornish giant. It was a matter of seconds, however, until he was sitting up, shaking his head to rid it of the pain and mistiness, and there in the darkness beginning to whisper his story. When the archer appeared, I gave him time to reach the center of the rise. Then following our plan, I plunged out into the shadow of the hedge, and moved towards him, as noiselessly as I could. He clearly did not see or hear me, for as usual he went through the routine of pulling his arrow and shooting it into the air. He reached for a second arrow, and aimed it, as far as I could see, at Uncle's lighted room. That was the moment when I leaped forward. I was all set to tackle him below the knees, jumping out from the shadow, running the few yards between us, and making that last flying leap. All of a sudden I hit another body, and hit it hard. I must have given it my shoulder, for I heard a grunt, and then a strangled oath. The archer had shot his arrow, but when he heard the grunt, he turned. We were out of the deep shadow now, I and the man, whoever he was, that I'd hit. The archer looked at us, leaped once, and then... Tim rubbed the top of his head in affectionate interest. I laid my hand gently on the sizable bump that had risen there. 
I get it, I said understandingly. Well, I got it first, Tim replied sadly, and it was no fun, no fun at all. We had been so wrapped up in our own discomfitures that we had almost forgotten the girl who was waiting there near the upper window. Can you make it? I asked. Tim answered by struggling a little shakily to his feet, taking my arm and following me through the deep shadow of the hedge back into the shadow of the house, and thence to the door, the stairs, and up to the third floor, where Beth was waiting. What a grand little soldier she'd been, sitting there in that window, waiting, holding the fort when there was darkness all around her, and below, the threat, perhaps of death to the man she loved. As we gingerly opened the door, though, she lost control of that magnificent courage, and threw herself into Tim's arms. "'Tim!' she cried. "'Oh, Tim! I saw him hit you, saw you go down, and for a minute I thought you were dead. Oh, how I've prayed! You're not hurt, not terribly hurt, are you? Tell me, are you all right?' They talked, dear, reassuring nothings, while I walked to the window. Before me lay the dark lawn on which we had been playing our part so inadequately. I felt thwarted as if we were dealing with some person, some powers or forces vastly stronger and cleverer than ourselves. Finally Tim drew Beth to the deep window seat. She took her place between us and filled in the details of the evening. I saw the archer appear, too. Her voice was very low and tense. He came, as he always comes from the regions of the summer-house. My eyes followed him across the rise of lawn, and I saw him take his arrow and draw his bow. Then Tim, oh, I'm so sorry, I turned to find and follow you. I caught sight of you just as you entered the shadow of the hedge, and I forced myself to look back to the archer. Then he came, Tim, that other man. He moved close to the ground, like an animal ready to leap. He had something bright and shining in his hand, something I could see even in the darkness. He too was heading but on what seemed the shortcut for the archer. I saw him sink on one knee. I saw him raise the bright thing, and then I saw you plunge out, hit him, fall, and I forgot the archer, forgot everything except that you and he were fighting. Then I saw him holding the bright object over his head, saw it descend, and you dropped. Tim, I knew as well as I know my own heart that you were unconscious. I almost screamed. I wanted to rush down to you. Only your orders to stay, no matter what happened, kept me here. Brave girl, whispered Tim, and I was sure he was pressing her hands. But what happened to the archer, I demanded, for that was the thing I wanted to know. Beth shook her head. I was watching Tim, she confessed. I didn't see anything, and when I looked back, he was gone. I sighed. The three of us had been playing our parts, and the three of us had failed. One smart figure from another world, one clever intruder into our lives, had tricked us all. One. No, not one. Two. If it had not been for the other man, Tim would have reached the archer, and right here and now we'd be in possession of a solution to our mystery, or part of it. What was the other man like? I demanded of Beth. Could you see him at all? Did anything about him look familiar? Beth's face, pale as it was in that gloom, seemed to grow paler. If the dead can come to life, she said, almost mystically, can the crippled walk again? What? Tim and I joined in that amazed query. Oh, I must be a fool. I've seen ghosts that may be ghosts, or not at all ghosts. I've seen Tim almost killed, only thank God he lives. 
but did I see right when I looked at the other man? Tim caught her by the shoulders and put her in a firm, reassuring grip. It was as if he was trying to pour calm and courage and sanity into her soul, and he seemed to be emptying himself in the process. "'Take it easy, darling,' he said. "'I know you're overwrought, but what are you trying to tell us?' With a great intake of breath, she drew into herself all that he tried to give her. "'Undoubtedly I'm mad,' she answered, "'or it was a trick of the darkness. But I could have sworn that the other man, the man who stalked the archer, and who struck you, Tim, was your uncle.' and for some strange reason, neither of us was, I think, even slightly surprised. End of chapter 6 Recording by Maria Therese